Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day, this opportunity to look at your word and to see what you'd have us to see from this very interesting chapter in Judges. We ask you to bless it. Give us a great anointing into this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Judges chapter 11. Last week we ended up, we left the children of Israel gathered for war against the um, Ammonites. And remember the last thing it says, what man shall, shall go lead us out to war shall be our He'll be our leader. Uh, so they're standing ready for war with no, nobody to lead them and nobody, nobody thinking of what's going on. So we start in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah of Gilead, uh, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up. And they thrust out Jethreth and said unto him, You shall not inherit our father's house, for you are, are the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. All right, so this story kind of should sound just a little bit familiar from two chapters ago. The names are very, very close together as well, uh, the, because we have uh, Abimelech, the son of Zerubbabel, who was the son of a concubine, who was rejected by the 70 other sons of Gideon, and they called him to be their leader. Here we have the same situation being developed. We have a person who is born of a harlot. Now, in this case, it's even a lesser degree than the concubine. At least with a concubine, there was a legal arrangement for a concubine to have sons and be provided for. With a harlot, there is no relationship whatsoever in, in its legal sense. So we're seeing a, as the people as a whole digress from God's standards, the leaders that God seems to be calling seem to be digressing as well. Uh, and we see this whole process going on. The people, the more evil they get, the more evil their leaders begin anyway. And Jethro, we're going to find out, is a pretty godly man in his own way. Uh, as we look at his story, he's going to come up with some very interesting things. But I think about even in our day and our world, as, as the world gets more and more evil, our leaders, even when we have a quote-unquote good leader, is really not that strong a moral character in, out there. They're, they're doing things that we agree with. They're, they do things that are righteous, you know, lead towards some righteousness. But they are not necessarily righteous people. And we see this progression. And we get down to where we see Samson. And Samson has got godly parents, but he does everything wrong. And we do a long series of stories on, on Samson and see his uh, failures in there. And we see this man, the son of a harlot. And it says that... Uh, Gilead's wife bare him all kinds of sons, and they kicked Jephthah out of the family. Again, that brings us to very similar things that happened in chapter 8 and chapter 9 with Abimelech, where he's kicked out of the family, and the people reject him. And then when times get tough, they call for him, because he is a mighty warrior, as Jephthah is going to show, is he is a warlike man. They need somebody of that quality to come and lead them because of the problems they're having with Ammon, with the Ammonites, as we looked at. And remember, when we looked at the story last week, that the people have rejected God. And at one point, if you remember, God says, well, go to the gods that you've chosen to, sell, uh, to serve and let them deliver you. And if you remember that story, when they finally come to their repentance, God delivers them and, and sets them up for this event coming in right here. And uh, and it says, that, you know, he tells them that the sons tell him, you're not going to inherit our father's house, for you are the, the son of a strange woman. <laughs> and the King James puts that kind of an interesting, you know, not even, you know, it doesn't say harlot or prostitute, which is what he is. So basically saying, you're not, you're not even part of the family. You're not part of the family. Go live someplace else. And it says he, and he fled and he la lived in the land of Tob, which literally means good. And it says, they were gathered into him vain or empty men, and they went out with him. And this statement is going to be something we see. Abimelech gathered vain men around him. When we get to the story of David eventually, we're going to find that David, when he's running for his life, gathers vain men around him. 
it seems to be these type of people are gathered to those mighty men that can lead them into battle and hopefully show them some righteousness and, and draw them into righteous living. And in David's case, he did. He drew the mighty men of valor to God under his authority. He didn't get drugged down to their level. Uh, not so sure how we, how we look at Japheth because he doesn't really, this, outside of this one little chapter, there's not a lot about him. And uh, verse 4, And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Japheth, Japheth out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Japheth, Come and be our captain that we may fight the children of Ammon. And Japheth said unto the elders of Gilead, Do not you hate me and expelled me out of my father's house? Why are you come to me now when, when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Japheth, Therefore we turn again to you now that you may go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head in all and over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Japheth said unto the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon and the, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Japheth, The Lord be our witness between us, if we do not so according to your words. Then Japheth went to the, with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Japheth uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpeth. All right, so this is... This is the people asking him to be their leader. They're desperate. They're desperate, and they will take basically anybody that was willing to, to lead at this point. And it's kind of, a, we laugh, but it's very sad because we also see that even in our day and age where we look at some of the leaders we have and say, wow, we're desperate that these will, people will make some decisions that might follow God, and they're not really godly people in, a, in all, their, all that we would love them to be. And yet, they seem to be the best we can get in our day and age. And here they're going to Japheth and saying, hey, you know, we want you. You've gathered all these guys. These guys are mighty. They're thieves. They're cutthroats. You know, they, they know how to fight when it comes down to it. You know how to fight. You're their leader. Come be our leader. You know, you, know, you, you happen to be a really good gangster. Come and lead us. <laughs> and, and that's really what they're saying. Okay, you've gathered a bunch of cutthroats and, and, and bad guys around you, vain, empty men around you, and you seem to have them somewhat under control. Come and be our leader. And his answer is kind of an interesting answer. Remember, Gilead is that area in the northeast part of Israel across the, across the Jordan. So they're always the ones that get battled first. We talked about that last week. All right? And it says, you know, they said, come and be our captain that we may fight with the children of Ammon. So they're going, basically they're saying, hey, you know how to fight. Come and be our leader because we don't know how to fight. And we're going to be, we've been uh, oppressed by Ammon. And remember in the last chapter, Ammon's been taking their, you know, their, their uh, food and, and making life difficult for them. And then Jephthah asked them, you know, did you not hate me and expel me out of your city? Yeah, you know, I kind of you know he's got this really tongue-in-cheek answer. You know, hey, you got you kicked me out. Now you want me to come back? And you know, there's a suspicion in the back of his mind as as would be there. Okay, you're in distress. You need my help. But when I when you're delivered, are you going to kick me back out again? And you know, he's got to be thinking that. You got me out of here, and you know, when you when you didn't want me, you know, I was a son of a a harlot, and you didn't want me. Now you want me because you need something. What are you going to do once you get out of that need? Because he'd already seen this happen to Abimelech. Remember when Abimelech delivered the people, they rebelled against him, and he only reigned for a couple years before he was pushed aside. And I'm sure he's thinking about this. Okay, you've mistreated Abimelech. You haven't honored God at all. You keep, you keep drifting away from God all these times. And, he, and you're going to find out he knows the history because he's going to talk about the history to the Ammonites. And... Uh, very interesting that he goes, you know, you hate me, you expelled me out, uh, why, do you, why are you calling me now that you're in distress? Verse 8, And the elders of Gilead said unto him, Wherefore we turn unto you now, that you may go before us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Say, basically, they're saying, we need you. We, we need you, and we're going to make you our, our leader. And at least they're blunt. They're not saying we love you, that we really desire you, but we need you. 
you, you have military prowess and we need somebody who can lead the army. And, we'll, and in return, we will be your leaders. And again, this, if you remember back two chapters ago, this sounds so familiar because this is exactly the same story, pretty much, as Abimelech being raised up. They're not talking about him making him a king, but they're going to say, you're going to be our head. You're going to be our ruler when you deliver us. You're, in fight, you're a fighting man. Abimelech, you're a fighting man. Come and lead us. You know, and he's going to said the same thing. What are you going to give me? Why, why now? And Japheth says the same thing. Says the same thing to him. Why now? You know, what it, and you've got to understand there is this idea of what's going to happen. And this is something that even as Christians we face frequently. How do we minister to other people knowing that they may not be truly wanting to be ministered to and yet trying to obey God and ministering to them and trying not to be used? And the world likes to use people over and over, and most of us have been there ourselves when we were in the world, that we would use people. Uh, we think about the prodigal son. He, when he had money, he had lots and lots of friends to help him spend his money. As soon as he didn't have any money, he didn't have any friends. And we see this kind of stuff happening frequently in the world. People use up those who have, especially if they're naive, and will just waste it. And he's looking at them saying, I'm not naive. I'm not, I'm not going to be used by you guys to get rid of your enemy and then have you throw me aside again. And this is what this whole setup is all about. You know, hey, you know, what, what is it you really want? And we see some honesty here. You know, hey, we need you. <laughs> we need you. Basically, they're saying, we need your military prowlers, and we're willing to be your servants when it's all done. And that's enough for him to begin with. Obviously, whatever he did, he sensed that they were being true. And, but he said unto them that we're gonna, you're going to swear and witness before God. In many ways, Japheth seems to be a fairly righteous man, even though he's a, in charge of a band of uh, cutthroats and, and vain people. He seems to have some righteousness in him. He understands if they're going to make a promise to God, God will hold them to their promise. Now, while we say that, we also know that sometimes when God holds faithful to their promises, it's a little longer than we want, them, want it to be and not quite the way we want it to be, but God always holds people to their promises and their, their commitments, even if they don't mean to. And this is something we look at, and this is why when we honor God, he holds it with that honor. When I was in Sacramento, a lot of people used to ask, you know, because we had almost as many panhandlers as Kingman does, but people go, should we give money to these people? And that's go, and I'll go, it's between you and God. But what if they're not asking for the right reason? That's between them and God. You gave with the right attitude and the right heart, God's going to bless it. What they do with it is between them and God, and God will deal with them wherever they're at. And if we're going to make a mistake, we want to make a mistake on grace and mercy, not legalism and law and, and being mean to somebody just because they might take advantage of us. And if Jesus had taken that attitude, he wouldn't have gone to the cross because there's lots of people that take advantage of him and his love and reject him. There are many that accept him. And our job is just to minister to people. And his job in, in this story is he's just going to lead the people. And he's hoping that they're going to be honest. And, but he does make them promise before God that they're going to keep their word. This is a big deal. He understands it's a big deal. And we're going to see later on at the end of the story, he really understands what it means to make a promise to God. And it, his promise is going to come and, and really hurt him. So we look at this, verse 12. And Japheth sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, what have, we, what have you to do with me that you are come against me in, to fight in my land? And the king of the children of Ammon answered the, the messengers of Japheth, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt and Arnon even to Jabok and unto Jordan, now therefore restore these lands again peacefully. And Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the children of Ammon and said unto him, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness unto the unto the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray, pass through your land, 
But the king of Edom would not hearken thereof, and in like manner he sent to the king of Moab, and he would not con con consent. And Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along through the wilderness and compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came by the sea, uh, the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the borders of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. Uh, I'll keep reading. I just want to get the whole paragraph. <laughs> then Israel sent messengers to Shihon, Asion, king of the Amorites and king of Hespon, and Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through the land to, to my place. But Shehan trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Shehan gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Shehan and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them, so Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites and the inhabitants of the country. And they possessed all the coast of the Amorites from the Anon even to Jabuk, and from the wilderness even to Jordan. So now the Lord God of Israel, which disposed of the Amorites bef from before his people Israel, and should you possess it? Will you not possess that which Shemos, your God, gives you to possess? So whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. And now you are now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel, or did he ever fight against them? Well, Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and in Aroer, in her towns, and all the cities that were along by the coast of Arnon, 300 years. Why, therefore, did you not recover them within that time? Wherefore, I have not sinned against you, but you do me wrong to war against me. The Lord judged the Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and between the children of Ammon. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearkened not unto the words of Japheth, which he had sent him. All right, long history lesson involved in this. And hopefully some of these stories sound a little familiar from our, from our classes. Uh, so Japheth's basically saying, you know, what are you doing? Why are you coming to war against and, and you notice his language was already he's identifying he's in charge. What have you to do with me that you are come against me to fight in my land? Okay, he's establishing who he is. I'm, I'm in charge of this land. Why are you coming to fight? All right. And he's really establishing himself. And the king of Ammon answered, because Israel took away our land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon, even to Jabrook and unto Jordan. Now, therefore, restore these lands again peacefully. In other words, you guys stole our land, give it back to us. Kind of sounds a little familiar to today's world, isn't it? Yeah. Israel's given the land by, by the uh, uh, English and others in, in the world government at that time, and now we have people telling them, give us back our land, you stole it from us. Well, God gave it to them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and this is exactly what Japheth is saying to the king of Ammon. He goes, God gave us this land. I don't know who you think you're talking to, but God gave us this land to possess. And, you know, history keeps repeating itself. It's exactly what's going on in today's world. The Palestinians now, and not Ammonites, are the ones that are coming in, and there's no such people as the Palestinians. They're, you know, they took over for a very, very short period of time. It wasn't their land ever. The land that was given back to Israel was Israel's land that, that God gave them thousands of years ago and sent them out for their disobedience and and it was given back to them and so we see this very familiar dialogue going on uh, and it's the same dialogue that's going on in today's world give us back our land and you can and we'll let you go and then it would be okay israel has no place to go and basically he's saying if you just give it back to us we'll be happy yeah. now they would not have been happy. They would have said, well, you took the land from the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the, Hittite, the, Hittite, the Hittites and all these other ites that are in that land. And they would have kept going after them for all the land, just as the current day opponents of Israel are doing with them. You know, we think about this. We look at today's history, and it's a repeat of what's been out there. When the children of Israel come back into the promised land, 
after the Babylonian captivity and they're sent back, they go through the same process with the uh, Samaritans and all the other people that are living in that land. And they'd only been gone for 70 years and they're sent back and the people are saying, well, this is our land. You don't have, it's not your land. And they're going, well, the king just gave it to us. It's our land. God gave it to us before that. It's our land. And they had to go to battle in Ezra's time. This is not a new story. This is nothing new that's been going, you know, and it's continued on to this day. You've taken their land. We want it back. And God says, I've given it to them. And we see this wonderful story. And it's, it's, I just read this, you know, this last week over and over again. I'm going, am I reading today's newspaper? <laughs> Yeah. Change a few names, change a few names and, and different groups, and you're reading today's newspaper in the story of Judges. And exactly the same. You, you came in, you took our land. And Jacob sends back his men, and he gives them a very long history lesson, which should sound very familiar to, to us as we've gone through this. He said unto them, Israel took not away the land of Moab or the land from the children of Ammon, but when Israel came up out of Egypt, they walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea, and they came to Kadesh, and that would be Kadesh Barnea, if you remember the rest of the story, because it's where they stayed for a while, and they camped there for a long time. And Israel sent messengers to Eden, and it says, pray, let me pass through your land, but the king of Eden would not hearken. And remember that story is, he really cut that story down, because what was actually said is, let us go through your land. We will buy water. We will pay for any damage done as we use the highways, but just let us take the highway through your land. And they were told, no. And God said, you cannot attack Moab. And you can't attack Edom because they are brothers. They are in their same family back through Lot and through Esau. They, they have their lineage to Abraham. And God says, no, you can't attack them. They are family. You're not going to attack them. So they had to go all the way around these people. Okay? And we've, we've mentioned this. You know, there, we don't really think about it, but there were highways through these deserts and still are to this day. Highways through the deserts where people were allowed to go through and knew the ways to the oasis, and they were roads. Not, not well paved like ours are today, but they were roads and highways that people were able to go on. And so when Moses went to them and said, can we pass through? And they said, no. They had to go all the way, way to the east, out, way out into the wilderness, and go to the north. Way out of their way. And into very rugged terrain because they were being pushed away from the rivers, away from the lakes, out into the middle of where I'm sure there's oases and, and things out there, but there are far and few between. And they were pushed way out of the way. And so here is Jabeth reminding them, you know, hey, we asked permission, and they said no. And then they went along in verse 18. They went in and they compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab. In other words, they went around it. And they pitched their tents outside of Arnon and came within, not within the border of Moab and Arnon, which was the border of Moab. So in other words, he says they went, went all the way around. They didn't cross into these two territories. And in verse 19, And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pray, we pr let us pass, we pray, through your land into our place. Okay? If Sihon had just let them go through, there would never have been a battle. They would have walked straight through, crossed the Jordan, and then went into battle. And the two and a half tribes would never have been stuck on the wrong side of the Jordan, Jordan River. They asked for it, remember. They, remember they asked, because, hey, this is great land for our cattle. We'd like to settle out here. And if Sihon had just let them pass through, the two and a half tribes would have been on the right side of the Jordan River that they were supposed to be on and wouldn't be going through all these problems that we're seeing through this area of Gilead right now. Hopefully it's all ringing, ringing to, bringing back messages from, from Deuteronomy and Joshua. But, in verse 20, But Sihon trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Sihon gathered all his people and pitched in Jehaz to fight against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them so that Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites and the inhabitants of that country. So he said, 
hey, if, the king, if your king back then, and he's going to tell us it was almost 300 years ago, if your king 300 years ago had let us just pass through, then there wouldn't have ever been this problem. He went to battle against us, and God defeated him. And this is Japheth talking. He's reminding a Gentile of the history. Because this Gentile doesn't remember the history. All he remembers is the land was taken by the Israelites. And Japheth is reminding them, hey, he, didn't, he went to war with us. Much like in our day and age where, where the people of Palestine went against Israel on the Six-Day War and lost a lot of territory because God gave them back land that, that was possessed by them, and they're still upset about that. They're upset that they were given land in the first place. Then they're upset that Israel beat them in the battles when they were a brand new nation, and Israel hasn't relinquished those territories that they took back that they feel God gave them, just as Japheth is saying, Sihon attacked us, we, and God gave us the land. Modern-day Israel is saying the same thing. You guys attacked us. You lost. God gave us back the land. And, you know, again, I, when I was reading this chapter, it's like just reading today's newspaper just changed some names. <laughs> but it just shows us that nothing is new. And again, we will see this, uh, you see this when you read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and all the battles they have to fight with the, with the trans-Syrian area that, that they were talking about, uh, or trans-Euphrates area that they talked about. And we see this battle constantly for Israel to keep the land that God gave them. And they come, and they, even today, they will come back to say, God gave us this land. In Ezra's day, God gave us back our land. You know, Japheth's day, God gave us this land because you guys didn't let us wander, you know, pass through in peace. And because you fought us, we were given this land by our God. And we see this history. This history is so important to understand all that goes on in the Middle East. To know what's going on into the Middle East, even to this day, is all of this history. These nations that are trying to fight Israel to this day are descendants of these ones who did not allow them and did not surrender and did not repent to God. And God delivered them into Israel's hand and gave the land to Israel as he said he would. But it's the same story over and over all through the ages. And and David rules, and Saul, uh, Saul rules. We have the Philistines keep making incursions into the land to try to take it away from them, and they have to keep getting beat back. We see the Canaanites that have been left in the land because the people in Joshua's day did not do their job. And all this goes back to them not doing their job by, originally. They did not get rid of all the enemies like they were supposed to. They, let, they just got tired of war and tired of seeing God give them victories and decided not to fight anymore. And it's hard to imagine why they would get tired of God giving them victory, because every time they went out, God won the battle for them. And yet they finally just got tired of it and said, okay, we'll just we'll put up with it. But you know, that's our danger for us as Christians is that we give up on the battles that God puts in front of us, because battles can be exhausting. Trying to do right in front of people and lift up God can be an exhausting thing, and so many times we will kind of hang up our shields and swords and say, okay, I'll just live with, the, I'll live with the enemy. They seem to be peaceful at, right now. And then they play all the cloak and dagger stuff to stab you in the back and drag you down. And this is what we face, and this is what they faced by leaving these various nations behind. And one of the worst things they did was get them to practice idolatry and worship of their gods. And then God would judge them. And that was one of the worst. They stopped fighting physically and just said, well, if we, can't, if we can't beat you militarily, we'll just get you to worship our gods and become just like, like us anyway. And too often we do that as Christians. All right, well, I'm tired of being criticized because I won't drink at these parties, and they start drinking with them. And they're going, aha, we got you. Your testimony's gone now. You know, tired of not doing whatever it is that you've been trying to be drug into. And... We need to be so careful because if we leave the enemy standing, it will defeat us. If we leave our flesh uncrucified, it will defeat us. And this is the results in, in the book of Judges is leaving that enemy standing has cost them. Every time they turn around, it costs them. And here we are, he says, you know, in verse 22, so now the Lord God of Israel has Deep, dispossessed the Ammonites from before his people Israel 
And should you possess it again? In other words, God gave it to us. He took it away from you. And should you get it back just by asking? He answer, no. <laughs> just as it is today, no. Even though the world is going against Israel very hard-handed to say, well, just give, a, give some of the land away and you'll bring peace. Well, these countries that they want to give the land away are just like them. They're not going to be at peace just because they give up their land. They don't want bits and pieces of the land. They want all of it. They don't want Israel to exist at all, just as this picture is here. They don't want them to exist at all. Then I love this one. Verse 24. Will not you possess that which Gimash, your God, gives you to possess? So whatsoever the Lord God shall drive out from before us, will we yet possess? In other words, hey, if your God's so strong, let him give you land. Now, if you think he's strong, he's daring them at this time to go to war. Yeah, this one is kind of a, a dare. You think your God's strong enough to win? Come on, let, let, let's get it on. Our God, our God gave us this land, and he's going to, he's looking back to the fact that they have just repented and turned away from their gods, and they have started to follow the righteous ways. And God lifts him up, and he says, hey, we're ready. We're ready. We'll, we'll watch our God. Let's, see, let's put this battle back to the gods against the gods. And we've, we've mentioned this several times. The battle in Egypt where the ten plagues were going on was a battle of the gods. God kept attacking each one of the various gods of Egypt. When he turned the, blood, the Nile blood red, that attacked all the, the god of the Nile. It attacked the god of the fish. It attacked the, the god of commerce. I mean, all these gods that they had were attacked when the Nile was struck. Then he brought in flies and, and lice and boils and, and locusts and all these things. Each one of those was against a god of Egypt. Then when he made this, the sky dark, was against one of their big gods, the god of Ra, the sun god. And he says, for three days, Ra is not going to have power to give light. And by the way, up here in Goshen, God's giving his people light. Okay, so Ra can not only not give you, you know, light, but he can't stop light from going in Goshen. Okay, so all these battles going on, and then each one of the battles between the gods as they march these different places, and they go, our gods are going to deliver us. And their gods fell before Israel and, and, and the God yeah, of the universe. We mentioned that way, way back. But all through this, we see this later on with the with Elijah on, on, the, on the mountain with the uh, prophets of, ba of Baal, you know, saying, hey, you, know, you guys call down fire from your God, and you know, when you guys are done trying to call down fire, I'll call down fire for, from my God. And, you know, and I love that story because he makes, fun, he makes so much fun of them. Yeah, and I love that. Is, I mean, yeah. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he went on vacation. Yeah. You know, maybe you need to yell a little louder. And then he just very quietly calls down fire from heaven that is so hot that it burns not only the, the sacrifice but, uh, and the wood, but all the rocks and all the water around it. You know, that's a hot fire. Mm -hmm. And he goes, now choose, choose who, you know, Israel, choose who you're going to worship. You know, but we see this all through the scriptures where many of these prophets will say to Israel, who are you following? Joshua calls, you know, choose you this day who you will follow. But as for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. Yeah, you <laughs> but that's just the point of the whole thing. We have the God of the universe on our side who is not going to be defeated. And here, Japheth is saying, hey, you know, why don't you just take whatever your God's given you? You know, you know hey, he wasn't strong enough to keep the land in, in King Sihon's day. You know, just take what, you know, you take and accept whatever he's given you. In other words, wh whatever wilderness they were living in at that time, go live in your wilderness that your God's given you. Or, more bluntly, think you're strong enough to take it from our God, come, come, and, come and try. Yeah. All right. So it's, he's kind of thrown the gauntlet down at this point. You think that Shimas is going to be able to give you back this land? Come and, come and try. Yeah, come and try. He's pretty, pretty bold. <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of put down in flowery language, diplomatic flowery language. You know, here, here's that story. Now come and, come and see what you can do. You know, come and, come and try. And uh, 
Then he goes, and now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? And did he strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Answer was, yes, <laughs> he did. A uh, little underhanded, because remember, Balaam told Balak, and the whole story of Balaam is that part of that, where Balak hires Balaam to come and curse Israel, and all the problems Balaam even had getting there, uh, where God told him no three times, and then said, if they've asked you to come, you can go. They did not ask him. He called them and said, I will go. And then on the way there, if you remember, his donkey kept laying down and leaving the road, and he ended up having this conversation with the donkey. Uh, you know, beating the donkey and the donkey saying, why, why are you beating me? And he goes, because you're a stubborn, stubborn donkey. And he goes, well, I've been your, been your donkey for years, you know, and have I ever done anything like this? And his eyes are opened. And then after he couldn't curse Israel, he told Balaam, get the people to, uh, Balaam told Balak, <laughs> get the people to bring their God's anger upon them. Send in the women to tempt them to worship your God. And so they did. And Balak got many thousands of Israelites killed because they turned away from God into worship of idols. And this is happening frequently. This is why God keeps telling his people, you do not intermarry. You do not give your daughters to them, and you do not take their daughters to be, be married to you. And we call it in Christian circles, do not be unequally yoked. Okay? Why? Because the person who is ungodly almost always drags the godly person down to their level, to, to not worship God. We see it all the way back, all the way back. As far as you want to go in the scriptures, we see it. And Balaam was one of the big ones when he told Balak how to do this, and we see this. And, but all through the scriptures, we see the tearing down of God's people more often than not by intermarrying with the non-godly. And this is something that's very important for us. And this is one of the reasons when I talk to somebody usually a young person, and they go, well, I think I should be getting married. Is the person saved? Well, I don't think so. Then I'm going, then you should not be getting, well, I think God's telling me, no, God, God did not tell you that. Here's the scriptures, and you run them through all the scriptures and say, God did not tell you that. You may, your heart and your emotions may be telling you that, but God did not tell you that. And we see this over and over again. And so he's given this long history, and he goes, you know, did Balak ever attack? And then when, while, uh, verse 26, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns and in Aror in her towns and all the cities that were among the coast of Arnon, 300 years, okay, so we're looking at 300 years ago that this land was taken away from Sihon. You know, why therefore did you not recover it within that time? Okay, uh, you've had 300 years to take it back. Why, why now? You know, is what he's telling them. And while Israel dwelt in his, um, and then it says, Wherefore have I not sinned against you, but you have done wrong to war against me? In other words, yeah, I haven't done anything wrong. This was 300 years ago. Go back and talk to Joshua and Moses if you really want to have a problem with this. Go talk to them. Your problem isn't with me today. This has been our land for 300 years. Kind of like in, even in America where we look at it, the land has belonged to America now for, for these all close to 300 years are getting, you know, and when we get American Indians that say, you know, Native Americans that say this is our land, you know, well, it's, your claim's a little old. And we see that. And do they have a valid claim? Maybe. Does he have a valid claim? Maybe. But why wait 300 years before you start your complaint? It'd be one thing if they'd fought all these 300 years, and then you could have said, well, hey, you've been trying. Your God hasn't delivered it to you, but you've been trying for 300 years. And so this is the thing that we see all through history, nations and empires come and go, fall and, and, and rise up. And nobody has ever held the lands forever. I mean, we look at this you know, and say, what part of this has is, is always been yours? Because if you look at anything that's in the quote unquote civilized world, it's had at least four kingdoms that have run it, Assyria, Babylon, Greece or Rome that have conquered most of the most of the known world at any one time. You've got the Chinese over on the far east that have owned and Japanese and Koreans that have been playing, you know, let's take land and give it back and take land and give it back. In Africa, you've got many tribes and nations that have come come and gone over history. Nobody has ever always owned anything. 
And it's always been in constant shift because of the warlike nature of the flesh. We want, to, we want what's, what we think is ours. And uh, we see this here. And then verse 28, however, the king of Ammon didn't listen to him. <laughs> okay, you give me this history, you're saying it's yours 300 years and we, we initiated the first war that lost it, but we're not going to pay attention to you is basically what he's saying. And then, again, we, we see it all in diplomatic language and poetry. Uh, verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh and passed over Mizpah of Gilead and among Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon and Japheth bowed a bow unto the Lord and said, If you shall without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So he's gathering the people, he's getting ready to go to war. Ammon has not agreed to not go to war with him and he's gathering his folks and going to war and he makes what's going to turn out to be a rather rash vow. God, whatever comes out of my house, I will offer as a sacrifice. Now I'm sure when he says this, he's thinking it's going to be a dog or a goat or a sheep that comes out of the first floor of the, the house. You know, as, as most families know, you, you know, your family dog will probably be the first thing that comes out of the house to greet you because they're faster than most everything else that, that comes out of the house. So he's thinking, you know, it's going to be one of my animals that come out of the house when I get there. I'm going to, yeah, you know the story. He's going to end up being his daughter. Uh, but he says, I will offer it up as a burnt offering or an offering of total dedication. Verse 20, 32, so Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hand, and he smote them from Ar even till they came to Mineth, over 20 cities, and into the plain of the vineyards, and a great struggle, and a great slaughter, and the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So they get this ragtag army, and they beat a well-organized army, because God put the deliverance into their hands. Very much as we saw in Joshua's day when it took him seven days to conquer the entire southern part of the kingdom and just another couple months to take control of the north. They never finished, finished their battles. But when God is on your side, there's nothing that is going to defeat you. And this is something we've got to really be, begin to understand. When God is on our side, we can be bold. We can be very aggressive and know that God is going to deliver the enemy. And here Japheth is saying, God, you, you, you're on our side. I, I, I trust you, and we're, you're going to have victory. And taking 20 cities in, in, a, very, in a single battle is quite, a, quite a, an accomplishment in a day when cities are sur surrounded by walls and, and chasing them. If you look at the map, you know, on the maps on this, he's chasing them from the north to the south of that whole area, and he's taking... The, taking and reconquering everything that they thought they had taken back. And basically, going back to verse 24, you know, hey, you think Gamash is really going to give you this deliverance? Let's see, who, let's see whose God is stronger. You've forgotten which God is stronger. We're going to show you which God is stronger. And this is the power when God is on our side. No enemy will defeat us. No enemy will bring us down when God is on our side. Now, when God's not on your side, you're not going to win. Think about the battle of Ai. You know, Israel comes in, defeats this monstrous defended city, and then goes against Ai, and they say, oh, we only need 30,000 men to beat Ai. It's a little tiny, little tiny village. We can take it, and Ai beats their butts because of sin in the camp. And God had not told them to go to war because he was not on their side for Ai at that moment because of the sin. Japheth is saying, God's on our side. We can't be defeated. And he's ready to go to war against a greater army. David, when he goes to visit his brothers at the camp when they're getting ready to go to battle and, and Goliath comes out and, and basically says things against God, not just Israel, but against the God of Israel. And David gets really upset about that and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that challenges our God? And his brothers are trying to say, shut up. You know, somebody's going to hear you and think, you know, think that something's there. And of course, Saul gets wind of it and he sends David to battle with Goliath and, and Goliath falls at the hand of David. Little, little young teenager 
that has never fought a battle with another person. He's fought a bear and a, and a lion and all the things he told, told Saul about. But he's never fought a battle against a human being. And God gives Goliath's life into his hand and wins the great battle. So we see when God is on our side, we won't be defeated. You look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who won't bow in the plane and they get thrown into the fiery furnace. God's on their side. You, can't, you won't be defeated. And I've always, and I tell you, I've shared this so many times, I love their answer to uh, the king. Whether God will deliver us or not, we do not know, but we will not bow before your idol. You know, which just made the king angry. And he turned the furnace up ten times higher and then threw them in. But I just love their attitude. They fully expected to be burnt to a crisp in the fire. Yeah. Yeah. They fully expected to be burnt to a crisp in the fire, and yet God delivered them to be a great testimony. And I said, not even the smell of smoke was on their clothes as they walked around the, around the furnace with Jesus. Later on, Daniel defies the king and gets thrown into a lion's den, and people go, well, the lions weren't hungry. Well, they sure were hungry when, the, when all the other leaders were thrown in with their families, and they ripped them, before, ripped them apart before they even landed on the bottom. God shut the mouth of the lions for Daniel and delivered. But Daniel had that same attitude. I'm not going to deny my God even if I die. And this is the attitude we must have as Christians when things get tough. God, if I'm going to die, I'm not going to deny you because you are what's important. When God is eternity. He's going to keep us for eternity. And if we just die on this world, it's not a big deal. It really isn't a big deal. And here we see the deliverance, God being on his side. Verse 34. And Japheth came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are... One of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And this is a very sad ending of this victory. He led the children of Israel into victory. He made a very rash vow before God. And he said, you know, whatever comes out of my house, and it turned out to be his daughter singing and dancing. Obviously, the, the message had gone back that he had won the battle. And she came back and celebrated in mode. She was probably standing at the door watching for him. And when he saw him, came out excited, beat, beat the sheep and the dogs out the door, which is what he expected somebody you know, to come out, which means she was standing there waiting. Because it said she had her, her tambourine and, her, and she was dancing because of this. And it says it was his only child. What a heartbreak this is going to be for him. His only child is going to be lost to him. And... And it came to pass when he saw her that he, that he rent his clothes and he said, basically, daughter, you have, you've wounded my heart like nobody else in the battle has done because I have made a vow to God and I cannot change it. And this is the importance that when we make a vow to God, we are to keep our vow before God. If we tell God we're going to do something, we better do it. So be very careful <laughs> about vows made to God. Uh, and people will go, well, I didn't promise. Well, that doesn't matter. God understood that you had meant it. You know, we like to do that to our kids. Well, I didn't promise we were going to do something. I just said I would. You know, I would think about it. You know, well, usually we didn't put the think about part in. You know, it's, uh, or I'd consider it. You know, uh, but we need to be very careful about that, especially to God. And the, in the uh, Pentateuch, it talks often about keeping our vows before God. And there's even offerings that must be made when you make a, make a vow before God and you have fulfilled it. You make an offering showing that it has been fulfilled. And it was an offering of thanks. And it was basically when you made that, when you had a vow and you made that offering, you got back half the animal and you had to eat it within two or three days depending on what the purpose of the vow was. And to eat your half of an ox, you pretty much had a party. You, know, you got your half of your cow, your half of the ox that has to be eaten in two days. You asked everybody in your, your family, in the village, whatever, whoever, anybody, come and help us eat this because it's got to be eaten in three days or, or 48 hours for, for certain vows. So it was a big party. 
And it was, God has answered it. He's given me my, my vow, and I've, and I've made a promise to him, and he fulfilled it. Here is the offering that is part of this vow. And it was a big party. It was a great time of celebration and getting everybody together for a big party. You know, maybe you were in a small village. You hope everybody would make a vow sometime, you know, in that month so that you could have lots of parties. But, uh, but you know, this was a big deal. He's made a vow before God, and his heart is now broken when he finds out that it's his daughter that comes out. And he's also got a problem because God doesn't allow human sacrifices. All right? So we're going to see how this is all worked out. Verse 36, and she said unto him, My father, if you have opened your mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which you proceeded out of your mouth. For as much as the Lord has taken vengeance for you on your enemies and even the children of Ammon. And she said unto him, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and be well my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man, and it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughters of Jephthah, the daughter of Jephthah of Gilead, four days in a year. So she understands that he cannot break his vow. I don't think even when she's saying this, she doesn't know exactly what he vowed. All she knows is that he's heartbroken. He made a vow that he's, that's going to cost him something, and somehow she's involved. Okay, because she's coming out in celebration, and he's going into tears. And something about this is going to tell her, "You made a vow." And he goes, you know, and he says, "I made a vow. I've, made, I've opened my mouth to God." And she goes, and obviously she goes, she knows she's the center of that. And how she knew, I don't know. Uh, might just be because she is so happy and excited and, and he breaks in tears when he sees her. And he says, just let me go for two months to uh, bewail my condition. And he allows this. I do not believe that he offered her as a sacrifice upon the altar of God. I believe that he probably offered an animal in her place, but that she was then dedicated to the house of God to be the servant in the temple from that yeah, tabernacle. Yeah, but God does not allow human sacrifice, and the, and the priest would not have done a human sacrifice. So I cannot believe that she was sacrificed uh, uh, upon the altar of God. But it does say that she knew no man. So I think from that point on, she was dedicated to the tabernacle to be the servant and had, would be a virgin for the rest of her life because she would have been redeemed. Just as God said... The firstborns of Israel were to be redeemed by a sacrifice. And, because, and they didn't have a choice in a, in, a, in a human. The human had to, be, had to have an offering made in their place. And it says, for the animals, if you don't sacrifice them, uh, or if they're not sacrificable, like a donkey or, or something that's unclean, and you didn't redeem it, you had to break its neck and kill it. I think in this case, and it's my opinion because there's nothing clear on this, but God does not allow human sacrifice. So she would have had to have been redeemed and placed into God's service from that point on. And that's the only thing that makes sense to me that she knew no man from that period on was that she had been redeemed and sent to the, sent to the tabernacle, or temple at the uh, tabernacle at this time, uh, to minister before God. Whatever that meant for her to minister at the tabernacle which probably meant cleaning and cooking for the, for the priest and, and to know no man. And then it became a, a celebration thing for people to remember this daughter's, uh, the cost of what she had to pay for her dad's rash vow. So she was like a nun then? Basically, she was, she was placed in the service of the tabernacle to do whatever was needed to be done. And she could never be a priest, obviously, but she would do whatever needed to be done at the tabernacle and put into God's service, much the way Samuel is going to be later on when his mother makes this vow saying, I will give me a son and I will give him back to you. And she placed him in the service of, the, of, of Eli where he spent the rest of his life being the servant before God. Times it says, who did with her according to this child which he gave love? Let's go back to the history of what a burnt offering is. The burnt offering is an offering of dedication before God. Okay, it was a 
offering that you're going to tell God by making your burnt offering. And this goes back to Leviticus 1 through uh, chapters 1 through 5, the, the, the various offerings of God. And we as Gentiles don't really realize there's more than one offering out there. We covered them all way back when. But the burnt offering was an offering of, God, I am dedicating yourself, myself to you. And rather than putting myself on this altar in full dedication, I'm putting this animal in my place as full dedication. Okay? So he says that whatever comes out is going to be a burnt offering. He was going to have to redeem most anything that came out of that, out of that house, unless it happened to be a goat or a sheep. Because if it was a dog or a cat or some other weird family pet, they would have been an unclean animal that could not have been offered as a burnt sacrifice. Most likely have to redeem whatever came out of, of that door. He would have had to have redeemed the dog. This all goes back in the Levitical rules. Is he crying about then the fact that his daughter was going to uh, be a servant? Well, it's his only daughter. She's no longer going to be eligible to, to, for the inheritance. She's not going to be able to get married. She, she's totally de dedicated to... God from this point on. Bewailing her circumstances. He could have been just as Hannah went to see uh, Samuel. You know, each year she went and provided for him and everything. He could go to the temple and see her after this happened. But in a very real sense, he's, she's no longer his daughter. He's, she's not going to inherit the. The, the land, well, she's not going to inherit the land. She's not going to ever get married and, and keep, the father, you know, keep the family name unless he was to go have another daughter or another child. But it really very clearly says this is his only child. Still alive. It's not, it's not, the, it's, it's not the end of the world necessarily. But it's the end of all of his dreams for his daughter. It's the end of his dreams of her going out and getting married and giving him grandkids. It's the end of his dream of having this land being his inheritance going to somebody of his own direct lineage because it's going to go to a brother. Now remember, he is a son of a, con of a harlot. Okay, so he doesn't even have family for this inheritance that he has to go back to. Truly. I mean, it, it go back to her, I guess. I don't know. You usually went back to the nearest male that's related, so I don't know how the rules would have followed. Yeah, because it never says that he had brothers. Yeah, it doesn't say, well, yeah, from the same harlot. It yeah. seems that he's the only child of this, of this woman, at least through the father that he had, through his father Gilead. So this is a big deal to him. He's, it's a sacrifice of all of his future dreams for his family have now been shattered. So it is a big deal. Now, yes, she's still alive. He can go visit her at the tabernacle. He can go see her. He can bring, you know, supply her with goods, whatever. But he's lost all those dreams. And anybody who's had children know those dreams, especially if you have lost a, a child, that dream of them having a family, the dream of them having grandkids for you, uh, all of a sudden shattered. And this is what he faces with this. Not a big deal in that culture. It's always been a big deal to have a family, to have your family, have your possessions passed on to somebody else. And still is to a degree, even though it's not as much in our day and age, it's still a big deal for most people who truly love their family is to be able to have their family name continued on, to have their family grow. And so he, all of his dreams for his family, for his daughter, are shattered by this experience. And I can't, like I say, because I just know that God has never accepted human sacrifice. And he saved Isaac when he told Abraham, offer Isaac, because it was a picture of Jesus being sent to, the, sent to death. And Isaac was snatched back at the last moment. Jesus was not. But human sacrifice has never been part of God's plan. And when he talks about us sacrificing himself, as it does in Romans Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's, we present to him a living sacrifice that's going to go forward and serve him. I'm, I'm very sure that that's what happened in, in this case. She, God does not condone human sacrifice, so she was never put on an altar and burned. She was dedicated to God and said, God, all my dreams, all my hopes for her are now lost because she's been... She is now directly your child. Abraham had known this as far back as he was 
in time? That God did not take the human sacrifice? Yes, I do believe that he understood that. It was probably one of the things that, that he gave him confidence when he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah was that God did not take human sacrifices. He said, uh, stay here with the lad and I will, will return to you. So I think Abraham fully knew that God was not going to take his son. He didn't understand how it was going to, or, and as the writer of Hebrews said, he was sure that if he had to kill his son, that God would resurrect his son so that God would not allow that sacrifice to be, be permanent. Because Abraham's roots are back into the battle of Nimrod and Eber. Okay, and Nimrod was all about human sacrifices to, the God, to his 36 gods, and, his, and Eber was all about the worship of the one true God, which did not include human sacrifice and, and all of that. Well, he knew that, the difference. So Abraham knew. That is our story for today, the sadness of rash, promises. Be careful what we promise God. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask you to help us to watch what we say, watch what we talk to you about, Lord, and help us to always know that we are to serve you without rash vows and promises. Guide and lead us this week as we go about our, your business. In Jesus' name, amen.